0: I love that song, I don't know about you. My one defense, my righteousness. And aren't you glad it, is, it doesn't depend on our righteousness, but that he is our righteousness? If it weren't for that, we would all be in a lot of trouble, amen? And so, just so thankful uh, to the Lord for what he has done, so that we aren't judged according to our, our righteousness, but according to Christ's righteousness, amen? There should be a louder amen to that, I'm sorry about that. That's a little better, all right. You know, this is a, an exciting time as we're, we've been studying the book of Joshua. And uh, we're in our journey with Joshua, and we're finally to the conquest phase. I don't know about you, but that's an exciting part to me, to, to uh, think of the conquest phase. I enjoy that part uh, of the story. To get out of the desert, cross the Jordan, and now we're into the conquest phase. As we, uh, as we look at, uh, at this point, really, for, for the next several weeks, we're going to see the Lord tear down walls figuratively and literally, and we're going to see that today and next week as well. Uh, we'll be looking at the story of Jericho, part one of the conquest phase, the story of Jericho. So if you turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 6, we'll be there, uh, or at least this week and next week. Right. I want us to understand a little bit of the literary structure of Joshua. and So I want to kind of set the stage because it's important for us to understand. It. It's not as complicated as that last one was. And I kind of walked through a chiasm. Uh, uh, but this is in a chiastic structure. What that means simply is that the beginning matches up with the end. And then the second thing matches up with the second and the last thing and so on. Um, and let, let me explain that as we come to uh, uh, Joshua chapter 6. Because this is just a unique chapter in scripture. First we have the introduction that comes in verses 1 and 2. So let's let's read those. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. It says, Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty men of valor. So we have really this... this uh, Introduction that brings up the state of affairs for Jericho and the state of affairs for Joshua. State of affairs for Jericho is simple, that they were shut up. No one was coming in, no one was going out. What does that mean? That means the walls were firm, right? No one could get in, no one could go out, and they have their defenses up and ready. Now this will come in handy when we understand what happens by the end of the chapter. But then we see with Joshua we, we find that the Lord is still in the place where he needs to encourage Joshua. He encouraged him multiple times in chapter one to be strong and courageous, but we see in verse two, to see, I have given Jericho into your hand its king and the mighty men of valor. He's reminding him of what's already his. I think this is a kind of a neat uh, verse when you think about it, because he said, I have already done this. What tense is that? Well, that's it, its a form of a past tense. He's saying, I have already done this, but has it happened chronologically yet? No, it hasn't happened, but he's saying, see, I have done that. But when God speaks about something future, it may as well be past tense, right? It's as good as done. Because if God determines that something's going to happen, is it going to happen? Absolutely. And so we can hang on to a promise, and we can be as sure of a promise as we are as sure of things that have happened in the past, that we have seen with our eyes or observed. But when God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I want us to skip all the way to the end of the chapter in uh, verse 26 and verse 27 we see a a parallel structure here, we we read in verse uh, 26, then Joshua charged them at this time saying, cursed be uh, the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city Jericho, he shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and his youngest he shall set up its gates, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the country Again, we find exactly what we find in the introduction. We we find a state of affairs of Jericho, and we find a state of affairs of, of Joshua and his fame. But what's the difference now? Jericho, is it shut up? Does it have tall walls, built walls? Firm? No. Now the walls are utterly destroyed. Completely gone, completely wiped out. In fact, there's even a curse on anyone who tries to rebuild the walls of Jericho. What do we read about Joshua? Now, the fame of Joshua is spread throughout the country. Is he talking about just the Israelites? Now, who lived in the country at this point? The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the people of, of, uh, of all the nations in the promised land. And they're hearing, wait a minute, this is what happened. God did something here. Well, what did he do? Let's go back and look at the rest of the story. So let's go back to verse 3. And we find, uh, uh, what we find in verses. Three through 7, we find instruction with a prediction. We find instruction with a prediction. Let's uh, let's start in verse 3. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the city shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass, now we're getting to the prediction, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people will shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up, every man, straight before him. What we find here is we find instruction, very specific instruction, with a prediction. The instruction comes in two parts. First, there's instruction for what they're supposed to do for six days. And then we find instruction of what they're supposed to do on the seventh day. Now, we need to understand a couple of things here. First of all, numbers usually have some kind of meaning, especially in Hebrew Scripture. Do they not? In fact, as you read that, um, did you recognize how often the word seven came up? Seven priests, seven trumpets, walking around seven times on the seventh day. It's hard to miss, right? It's very hard to miss. And so why is there this repetition, and why is there such a focus on the number seven? Well, what does the number seven represent? It represents God. That's his number. In fact, the very first thing we read about God in history, Genesis 1, he creates the world, and he does it in a very special way, and he does it in a seven-day week. Right? Right? In fact, the Jews were supposed to get from this that, oh, the seventh day God rested, that's supposed to be the day that we're supposed to set aside for God. In fact, the, the word for Sabbath, you know the, the, the Hebrew word Sabbath? Remember the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. You know what the word actually means? Seventh. That's all it means. It means the seventh day. Uh, why? Because it is the Lord's day. And, and we find this imagery all through Scripture, right? We can go out Story after story. To tell you about Naaman. remember Naaman when he had leprosy and he was told to, uh, uh, to dunk himself in the water, baptize himself in a sense, in the water. How many times? Seven times. After six times, was he, was he you know, six sevenths oh, I can't even say that word was he six sevenths of the way healed? No. It wasn't until he was baptized. Seven times that we see that his body was healed. Why? Because there's imagery going on that it's about God, and, and God wanted to remind the Israelites of this. And so, six days they do they do what God told them to do, but not until the seventh day the, would the prediction happen. It's interesting to note too that six, oftentimes in Scripture, is a number that represents what? Anyone know? Man. In fact, man was made created on the. Sixth day, and we find that. We find it all, the way, it all the way, take it all the way to Revelation and see even in the number 666. Um, and so we we see this imagery that God is using through numbers that, showing that day seven is special. Just like in Genesis 1. Day seven is very special because it's it's the Lord's day, it's the Lord's turn uh, to go to work. So we find this instruction and the prediction, but how did it play out in history? So for that, we need to go uh, on to verse 8. Let's uh, skip ahead to verse 8. By the way, verses 6 and 7, Joshua repeats the same uh, instructions to the priests, word for word, word, detail for detail. Verse 8. So it was, when Joshua had spoken to the, the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I say to you, Shout. Then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. (coughs) And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then seven priests, wearing seven trumpets of ram's horns, brought the ark of the Lord, or before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets. And the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord, while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did this six days. So... For the instructions that that God gave them for the six days, did the Israelites follow those instructions? To the T. You might get lost sometimes in the details, but why are the details there? Because the details of what was going on in their actions match the part of the story where they were given the instructions in details. And so you can look at the details and compare the details of the instructions with the details of their actions, and they matched perfectly. But after six days, did anything happen? Not after six days. This is called a test of faith, right? They had to obey. It was a test of their faith. And, uh, and and that's exactly what God was doing. But let's see what happened on day seven. Verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh day, or excuse me, and the seventh time, it happened. When the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. We'll talk about that more next week. Verse 18 And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold vessels and bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 20, So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with great joy that the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. It happened exactly as God said it would. Did it not? And they followed it to a T. Day 7, they followed exactly what God God said. And on day 7, it happened the great walls of the city... Put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They have not had a walled city for 40 years, and even then they were slaves before that. They've never had the protection of a walled city, and they're coming in against a city with walls, and the walls fall flat when, when they obey God's word. Amazing, isn't it? You know, when we look at uh, how the New Testament talks about this story in Hebrews 11, uh, the great hall of faith, it goes through and lists the great the great men and women of faith and Old Testament, it says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they encircled for seven days. This is really a story about faith, isn't it? This is one of the few situations in the the great hall of faith in Hebrews 11 where, where God doesn't mention a name, but he applies it to the entire people group as a unified whole and said, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. This is a story about faith, is it not? Today I want to look at three faith lessons from the Jericho narrative, from the story of Jericho. Three faith lessons from the story of Jericho. There's more to pull out of this text. There's more to apply in this text. So we're not going to to spend just one week on this text. But I want to look at just the three lessons of faith that that we find from this. The first one is that God's power is supernatural. God's power is supernatural. You know, it never, it never ceases to amaze me how at the great lengths that the, that the world will go to to, pry, to try and prove the opposite. Have you ever noticed that? It seems like no matter what evidence we find that supports what the Bible has to say, you're going to find archaeologists and the scientific community, you're going to find people out there that will do anything they can to discredit it. I've read stories on, on how uh, they, they could explain, for example, the crossing of the Red Sea. Nat, by natural means. You know, and I've heard, you know, they came up with theories where, well, where they crossed, at the time they crossed, it was only about three inches deep. And I'm thinking, that creates even a bigger miracle because how in the world did, did God drown the Egyptian army with three inches of water? <laughs> right? I mean, it, wow. You know, it just, and so they dig themselves into these holes trying to figure out how in the world. This is what Wikipedia said about, the, about Jericho. um Jericho. Uh, it says, Archaeological evidence indicates that in the later half of the Middle Bronze Age, 17 BCE, or 1700 BCE, by the way, you know what BCE stands for? Before the Common Era. Just to, just to let you know. Because they had to add the E, because if you don't add that E, what does it mean? Before Christ. Then they would have to admit that even our calendar system is based on Jesus Christ. right? So they have to rename this somehow. So... This is not; these are not my words. I say BC, all right, because I every, measure everything in Christ, right? And and so I look at that and uh, uh, and I just see that. But anyway, seventeen hundred BCE, because it's their words. The city enjoyed some prosperity; its walls having been strengthened and expanded. The uh, uh, the MBE period, uh, talking about the Middle Bronze era, the, uh, the MBE period and following centuries have engendered controversy due to their importance in the biblical story of the conquest of the promised land by the Israelites. What are they talking about? Joshua 6, right? It says, during which the walls of the city are supposed to have collapsed, allowing the Israelites, led by Joshua, to enter the town. They're supposed to have collapsed. Why? Because they can't believe that God did something supernatural. They have to believe that there has to be a natural explanation and then they go on through and they cite different archaeologists who have proven that uh, that, they're, that that happened by natural means that's that's Wikipedia this is supposed to be a source of truth right you can find a lot of truth in Wikipedia you can find a lot of other stuff in there too <laughs> but I thought why trust Wikipedia why not go to the sources so I started looking at some of the original sources I couldn't help myself I love archaeology and It's a a lot of fun to me. So I I looked and one of the sources they cite was Kathleen Kenyon. Here was her conclusion. Her conclusion was this. uh, It says, "'What caused the strong walls of Jericho to collapse? "'The most likely explanation is an earthquake. "'But the nature of the earthquake was unusual. "'It struck in such a way as to allow "'a portion of the city wall on the north side "'of the site to remain standing, "'while everywhere else the wall fell.'" This is proof, people. This is, this is proof. <laughs> but I want I you to take a look at uh, Joshua chapter 6, verses 22 and 23 again for a second. But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman in all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all her relatives... And left them outside the camp of Israel. From there they went in. Verse 24. But they burned the city. And uh, and so what did we find happening? You go all the way back to it. Several weeks ago we talked about Rahab. She, she protected the spies. She feared the Lord instead of fearing the, the people of Jericho. And what happened? They made a promise to her. And did God keep that promise? He sure did. He kept that promise. And the secular world says somehow... There was an earthquake that didn't destroy that portion of the wall. Now think about that for a second. Uh, the walls, according to, to the, the same sources, the walls were 15 feet thick, right? At, at least 15 feet thick walls, huge walls. And they were fell, not just fallen over, they fell flat, flat except that in this one little sliver of the wall that stayed firm. Do you know of any earthquake that's ever worked like that in the history of mankind? How many of you have been in an earthquake? Right, a few of you, okay. Well, we, we lived through earthquakes frequently in Costa Rica. Only a couple of them were bad enough to have things falling off the walls and, and whatnot. But, um, uh, but you know what? Earthquakes don't work that way. They're strong. They're in their epicenter, and then they work out. They decrease in their strength as you get further and further away from the epicenter. That's the way it works. The idea that it could knock 15-foot thick wall flat all the way around the city while part of it remained completely standing it would take an incredible force to protect that. It. it doesn't work that way. All this—I know I'm pre- preaching to the choir, right? but you know what? God's power is supernatural. That's the only explanation. That's the only explanation. She went on to say, uh, 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 Kathleen uh, Kenyon went on to say this. She said, that destruction was complete. Walls and floors were blackened or reddened by fire. And every room was filled with fallen bricks, timbers, and household utensils. In most rooms, the fallen debris was heavily burnt. Does that usually happen in an earthquake? No. You might have some buildings burned down nowadays when you have electricity flowing into every, every house. But that's not typical. But what do you find in verse 24 of Joshua, uh, Joshua 6? Uh, verse 24 says, But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Does it match? Does the archaeological evidence match the biblical account? Or does it match the imagination of the scientific community? It matches the Bible, again. But all Wikipedia has to say is that the archaeologists agree that it was a natural cause. And I say this because you hear this stuff all the time, and our culture is going to tell you day in and day out that everything the Bible says is, is, is make-believe, and, there, and all the scientists agree, and so on and so forth. But I'm telling you, if you look at the original sources and look at what they actually find time and time again, it will back up Scripture. Why? Because the answer is simple. We don't need to find natural explanations for these things because God has power that is supernatural. And and it's important for us to understand that. So God has the power. What really caused the walls to collapse? Really, we we got the answer last week. Remember when Joshua was visited by the commander of the army of the Lord? He said, show them. The things you don't see are the things that make the difference, Joshua. You're not alone. You just obey, and the army of the Lord comes in, and they knock down the city. Amen. There's your There's your answer. Better than Wikipedia. So, and you heard it here first. Not here. You heard it here first. Amen. <laughs> all right, all right. So, uh, so faith lesson number one: God's power is supernatural. We know that, but let it sink in. Lesson number two: God's ways are unnatural. Now let me explain what I mean by that. God's ways are unnatural. Here's a picture of, uh, I don't know how well you can see it from there, but here's a picture of Jericho today. Uh, you'll have to imagine it with walls, because for some reason all the walls are flat, right? <laughs> but imagine this, uh, this wall, uh, the walls around this city, and put yourself back into that time period, and your job is to take over the city. How would you go about it? If it was your job to develop the strategy, how would you go about it? I went through that exercise this week in my own mind, and then I was thinking. first thought was, well, You can go through the wall some way. But then I read it's 15 feet thick. Trying to go through a wall 15 feet thick, not the smartest idea. It's impossible. So then, what else might we think of? I heard someone say, over the wall. I thought of that too, going over the wall. Did you know, though, that the wall was uh, 35 feet high and it was built on a 35-degree angle followed by 11-foot towers after that? Um, Yeah. Going over it, that might be the faster route, but super high casualties, right? <laughs> super high casualties, not a smart move. This is the one that, I, that came, I concluded, this is probably what I would have done. Surround the city and starve them out, right? Just surround the city, don't let anyone leave, uh, but, but I would have given up on the whole wall thing altogether. <laughs> Just starve them out, once they're dead, rotate the city. But then you have to run some high risk of any neighboring allies, don't you? And so while you're facing inward and then the enemies come from outward, that's not a great, it's not a great solution, even humanly speaking. How many of you, while you've just been going through this exercise you, in your own mind, came up with a solution? I know what we could do. March around the city. One time for seven days. Seven times on the seventh day and then we'll shout. Blow our trumpets. How many of you thought of that? Zero? Right? Why? It's not even on our radar screen. It's, it's just not a, a solution that we would come up with. Now, you might come up with that solution after hearing God's directions, right? Because those always send, uh, seem to work out whether they make sense or not. But oftentimes, what God tells us to do does not seem natural to us. Isn't that true? I mean, w- w- there are things that we've, I've read in Scripture where I've had to just say, Lord, I'm taking this on faith because it doesn't make sense to me. Anyone else that have been there? Turn the other cheek. But Lord, how how's the other guy gonna ever learn? <laughs> if I turn the cheek. Okay, Lord, I'll turn the cheek. And I see what God does and say, wow, okay, he did know what you were talking about. Right? And we find these things in scripture where it, it just it seems unnatural, uh, but Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says this for my thoughts, this is God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, or, nor, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, I'm looking at it from a very human perspective, and I'm thinking, how can I strategically overcome this city? That's how I would look at it. That's a very low way to think about it. And God says, but I'm not thinking about it from that perspective, because for him, his perspective, defeating the city is, is nothing. That's a piece. Of, I mean, he created the universe with his breath, right? And so defeating the people of Jericho, that's nothing to him. So he's thinking about it from a completely different way. He's thinking it from a higher level. What's he thinking about? How do I develop the faith of the people of Israel? Oh, I know how I'll do it. I'll do it in such a way where they have to follow the direction. I'm going to use the word seven a lot. So, so they know who's in charge. And I'm gonna, now all of a sudden, the directions begin to make sense, don't they? Because it's not about some human strategy. And, and uh, God's ways are so much higher than our ways. Or we read in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21, uh, we read this, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Think about that. To the world, they listen to it and they mock, do they not? Yesterday, I was in downtown Grand Rapids, the Mecca of Christianity, right? <laughs> and I, there were a couple of guys with their Bibles and they were street preaching. Right. They, were, they were inviting people to the gospel right there, then and there. And there was a man that turned around and he said that this word for word. He said, if I had my way, they would carry you out in chains. That's what he said to the, to the man for preaching the gospel. I walk a little bit further and I hear some other, uh, some college agents that had must have heard they're the same guy. And they're like, He's trying to tell us we need salvation. We already live in the USA. That's what she said. Why? Because the message of truth God's ways are not natural to man's ways. So they look at it and they say, that's foolish. That's foolish. Like the verse says, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, there's the power of God. The supernatural power of God. He goes on to say, verse 19, "For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? God's ways are unnatural to us. They're not unnatural to him, but they're unnatural to us. And what it boils down to is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then the part of the verse that we oftentimes skip over or don't focus on. And lean not on your own understanding. Imagine for a moment if the Israelites had leaned on their own understanding. They probably would have thought through the options, maybe tried to starve them out. They would have either tried to starve them out and probably died from their neighboring allies, or they would have tried to go over the wall and, and had huge casualties, probably not even succeed anyway, or they would have gone through the wall and and had no, no victory whatsoever. If they had leaned on their own understanding. But God says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. You put those two principles in action at the same time, it's amazing what God will do. In fact, we find in verse 6, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. I don't know about you, but that's who I want directing my paths. is God. Because it's always a path of victory, is it not? So, God's power is supernatural, but His ways seem unnatural to us. Those are two important principles of faith. But if we understand this third point, it's kind of like the power switch to this whole thing. It's that God's power is unleashed when we obey. God's power is unleashed when we obey. Again, I just want to look at uh, the instructions and the actions. Because I think it's important for us to take a look at that. Six days, they were told to circle the city one time and to do this with the seven priests, seven trumpets. Look at their actions. In six days, what did they do? They circled the city one time. They had the seven priests and the seven trumpets with the ark of the Lord and all, that, all that goes along with that. They followed the, the instructions to a tee. And then on the seventh day, what were they told to do? They were told to go around the city seven times, and then they were to give a long blast, and then they were to shout, and then uh, there was a prediction. What was that prediction? The prediction is that the wall will fall down. What actually happened on day 7? Day 7, we read it in verses 15 through uh, through 21. Uh, We find that uh, they circled the wall seven times. There was a long blast. And then they shouted. And then what do we find? We find verse 20. So the people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet. And the people shouted with a great shout. That the wall fell down flat. Exactly what he said. Do you see how, how obedience is the key to unleashing God's power? Because as he's teaching us faith, if he, if we aren't obedient, then he can't give us the reward. He has the power to give us the reward. The power is there, but he can't do that. It's like uh, for any of the, of, the, of you who who uh, have dogs, have trained dogs. How many of you have trained dogs? Okay, there's several of you. I am no dog whisperer. All right. And I had a friend remind me of that the other day, and he just gave me a couple tricks. But you know what? When we we train our dog, when when she's obedient, what do we do? We reward her. And all of a sudden, she starts obeying more and more. (laughs) You see God teaching the Israelites the same concept in a sense. When they obeyed, God is excited because now he can reward. He could not reward them by giving them the promised land when there was no faith, and he had the 12 spies go in, and 10 out of 12 said, "Oh, we can't do this. We have, no, we have giants in the land we can't do this." God could not reward them for that, But now he can, because they have faith, they're expressing faith, and God's saying, "Now I can show now I am going to do it. Why? Because their faith translated into obedience. And those two things really, if it's real faith, it's going to, there's going to be obedience. Is't that true? Isn't that what James 2 says? Faith without works is what? It's dead. It's not really faith. And uh, and we see that uh, take take place here. We see that God's power is unleashed when we obey. So what about you? you, How have you underestimated the supernatural power of God? I mean, admit it, we live in a culture that tries to naturalize everything. They try to turn everything into nature. Our public schools will only teach naturalism. How has that affected us, if you're honest? Think about that. Do you have this smaller picture of God? Do you get worried when things are rough? Do you get worried when there are trials and obstacles in the way? Or do you just think, all right, Lord, let's see how you're going to get us through this. My guess is that all of us, including myself, sometimes we limit our image of God and when we underestimate the supernatural power of God. Are you guilty of that? I know I am. <laughs> How have you underestimated the supernatural power of God? What are some areas in your life where God's directions just don't seem to make sense to you? Maybe it just doesn't seem natural. Maybe God's saying this or that, and, and you, you don't understand it. I, I've talked to um, to young ladies who, who uh, tried dating some Christian guys, and they weren't great Christian guys. So they said, "Well, we'll we'll try unsaved guys, and maybe we can." You know, they call it missionary dating. <laughs> try and reach some of the unsaved guys. Why? Because, but what does the Bible say? Be not unequally yoked. But it doesn't make sense because, you know, but Lord, we live in this culture. Trust in God. Don't lean on your own understanding. Or, or maybe it's in, in some other area of life. What's the, your area of life where you say, you know what, God's been giving me directions, but it just doesn't seem to make sense. We talked about it last week with Moses. Lord, you've given me the wrong job to do because I mean, you've asked me to be this, your spokesperson and I stuttered. That's what Moses was saying, remember last week? It didn't seem to make sense, but God's saying, no, no, your ways are not my ways. My ways are higher than your ways. And God loves to use people, he loves to use weak people to show his strength. And so, what ways are you limiting God? What ways maybe are you saying, God, this just doesn't make sense. Maybe God's called you to do something, and you think, oh, Lord, that can't be what you're actually calling me to do because I don't have the skill set to do it. Take those things, throw them off. That means you're underestimating God's supernatural power again. Right? Go back to number one. Get number one in order. and Then go back to number two so that there's nothing hindering you. The big question then, are you willing to trust Him in those areas? And say, Lord, if you're asking me to do something, I will do it. It might not make sense. I will do it anyway. I had a, a, an older man come into the office uh one, one in, from this room right now came into the office two weeks ago and said, I feel like the Lord is telling me to do this, but it is way out of my comfort zone. What did I encourage him to do? Do it! Absolutely! Right? Absolutely do it. I can't wait to hear the stories from them of what God's done with that. Because God shows His power in our weaknesses. He was willing to take a step out of His comfort zone. And by the way, this isn't just for young people. This is for older people too. Amen? Find out where we are, what God called us to do, and, and, uh, and let God take it from there. Are you being completely obedient? Or are there any areas in your life where you're saying, these are acceptable sins or tolerable sins? Uh, what are some of the sins that, that you've tolerated? Because did it take six out of seven days of obedience? Or did it take seven out of seven obeying every detail? Took seven out of seven, obeying every detail. And when we are obedient, we unleash God's power as we obey Him. So where are you? I'm going to give you a moment to uh, bow your heads and close your eyes for just a few moments. I want to give you an opportunity. In a moment, we're going to sing. And there are two different invitations I want to give today. There might be some who've come today and say, you know what? Up until now, I've fallen for the lie. I've fallen for the lie that the gospel is foolishness. But today, I want to accept the gospel. I want to accept the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for my sins. If that's you today, I'm going to ask you to come up and talk to me. I'll be right up here in front. Just come up to me. You don't have to say a word. Just come up to me. And I will make sure that you have an opportunity today to to know from Scripture how you can walk out of these doors knowing for certain you have eternal life. For those of you who do know, know Christ as your Savior, and you know for sure that he, where you're headed eternally. But maybe the Lord's touched in a different way today. Maybe you've been underestimating God's supernatural power. Or maybe some of the areas in life where you think, Lord, you've been calling me to do something, but it just doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem natural or an area where you're willing to obey, if you're willing to commit to obeying God today, I want to give you an opportunity to make that profession public too. You can come up anywhere along the stage here, uh, the lower stage here, and just commit that to the Lord. It's between you and God. You can do it from your seat as well too. But make sure you're serious with God and say, Lord, today I admit where I've underestimated you or where I've not been completely obedient. But Lord, I want to unleash your power today in my life and in this church. So I'm committing to to being faithfully obedient to you. And if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that as as we uh, come together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word again. And I pray that you'd work in our lives. I pray that this would be a time where many commitments are made to you that we can see your power unleashed. We've begun to see it, just like the Israelites who crossed the Jordan. We want to see you conquer strongholds that the devil's had up till now. The only thing standing between that and where we are today is our commitment to complete obedience to you. And so that's what we pray for today Christ. name.